I love Jared Allen. Fear the frog. How with the right hand. That's our boy Bob Schmidt. <laughs> Jared Allen with authority. This is the Fear the Fro podcast, a Cleveland Cavaliers and NBA podcast with Bob Schmidt. Nobody's going to subscribe. Welcome. Episode number three of the Fear the Fro podcast. I am Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio, but more importantly, a big Cavalier fan, a big NBA fan. And this is my third episode of this venture. You can follow me on Twitter at FearTheFroPod. Also on Instagram, at FearTheFroPod. But most importantly, I hope that you like this podcast and will consider subscribing or rating it or whatever the case may be. But to why I decided today was the day that I needed to launch a pod. Well, I felt like there was some relevant news to discuss. And all of that stemmed from Chris Fedor and Hayden Grove of the Wine and Gold podcast bringing up the subject of the Colin Sexton extension. Now, this has been in the news the entire offseason. There have been trade rumors linked to him. There have been debates internally amongst us Cavs fans about how much money is Colin Sexton worth paying. Now, this is a guy who offensively, his skills are undeniable. High percentage score, high volume score, contributes with some passing, some rebounding. Obviously, his glaring deficiency is defense. We all know his game at this point. But really, the debate has not come down to, you know, is Colin Sexton a good player? I think we all appreciate his abilities and and the stuff that he is a high-value guy in the NBA at providing, which is scoring. But it's really more an issue of, at what value do we place Colin Sexton's skill set amongst our franchise? So, while nothing has happened yet, Chris Fedor and Hayden Grove, I was listening to the Wine and Gold podcast earlier this week. Very interesting nugget off of that podcast I'm going to bring back here to discuss. This was Chris Fedor once again on the Wine and Gold podcast. It went up on the 16th. They get onto the subject of Colin Sexton's extension and where does it sit with the Cleveland Cavaliers there are going to be extension talks with Colin Sexton the general ones have already started between general manager Kobe Altman and Colin's people Um, but I'm told that they're going to pick up significantly around Labor Day I don't know if something's going to get done but that that's when they're supposed to really heat up and, and Colin's people are going to exchange numbers and they're going to look at the data and say, hey, this is why he's worth this. And then the Cavs are going to say, no, this is why we think he's worth this. That's supposed to happen, I'm told, around Labor Day. So Labor Day. Labor Day is when he's suggesting we can see these extension talks ramp up. And the fact that we just saw two guys extend who still had time left on their deals, Marcus Smart and Terry Rozier, this could be right around the corner. I think we're going to see a lot of these guys who are a year away from free agency. Now that the market has kind of been tapped and all the big high profile unrestricted free agents have signed, it's just minor maneuvers happening there. So teams will start to turn their attention towards their own guys and locking them up into the distant future. But specifically to the reason that I decided I wanted to do this podcast today, Terry Rozier and Marcus Smart. Those guys have both come up in the past week, and I think they're relevant in this discussion, not because they're the same player as Colin. They aren't. They're different. Both of them are older. 
Both of them are combo guards, though, similar to Colin, and they offer different strengths and weaknesses. But the big point of contention amongst Cavs fans seems to be, what is the value of Colin Sexton? Almost universally, nobody would be happy if we pay Colin Sexton a max contract. That may be what he was seeking. And if you're going to base it on stats, yes, Colin Sexton at least has an argument at his age, 23, doing nearly 25, 5, and 5 on great percentages. Those are normally the types of guys who get a max rookie extension. But there's more to the story than just the numbers. We obviously know with those numbers, wins have not accompanied them. The Cavs are still struggling, and there are times where Colin Sexton seems to struggle to integrate his teammates. He's an incredible scorer, an efficient scorer, but he's not an elite-level defender. And there are questions as to whether his abilities are hiding or holding back some of the abilities of the guys around him. Specifically, Darius Garland is one of those guys. He's the guy that is more likely to play a traditional point guard role and still a very capable scorer for the entirety of Sexton's time on the Cavs. There's always been a debate as to whether he and Garland can work as a tandem in the backcourt because their size and their defense is not ideal, but also just because Colin Sexton is a volume scorer. And if there's one thing every bench unit needs, it's that. So there's been discussions about, oh, I think his long-term role is Lou Williams or a super sixth-man type who can just fill it up. Now, I think Colin Sexton's better than that. I think that's just an argument people make to, to discredit Colin because, by and large, We've struggled as a team, and as the highest profile player on that team, and as the guy who's the leading scorer on that team, sadly, with that kind of recognition comes shouldering a lot of the blame, especially from casual fans of other fan bases who just like to lump everyone the Cavs have as garbage and say, oh, this team doesn't know what they're doing, this franchise can't run stuff. But it is important to remember that when we get into these debates internally about What is Colin Sexton's worth? We have this tendency to discuss it in terms of, you know, he's not making us better as a team, so he's not worth this much money. And because he's not the ideal size counterpart to Darius Garland, this is why he's not worth this much money. And I think that's, it's a flawed way to view things because you can't take a guy and assess his worth with a market of only one team. Yes, to us, He may not be worth what he expects to get in free agency. But amongst all the other teams who don't necessarily have those awkward roster fits, a scoring undersized combo guard like Sexton may be very well worth what he wants to those teams. But contextually, I think one thing to do when you get into these situations is to consider recent history and the precedents that have been set And while nothing is 100% comparable, there are people every summer who sign, who set what the market is for guys in a general range of players. This summer was no exception. And I wanted to take a look and use that as a framework to come to a conclusion as to what we should all expect in terms of what Colin Sexton will get paid. Now, the first two guys, we've already brought them up. They're recent extensions, Terry Rozier and Marcus Smart. In the case of, we'll start with Rozier. 
Rozier just signed an extension for four years, $97 million. That's an average annual value of over $24 million a season. That is what we should be expecting from Colin Sexton in all likelihood. Terry Rozier isn't even the most important player on his team. That's obviously LaMelo Ball. But between him and Miles Bridges and a couple other pro, you know, higher profile younger guys they have in PJ Washington and now James Booknight, this is a guy who's going to play a big role in this team for years to come. But the team is obviously going to be built around LaMelo Ball with Graham out of the picture. It's those two in the backcourt with Book Knight spelling them as a rookie and hopefully playing a larger role as time goes on. But this is a guy statistically and analytically not that far off from Colin Sexton. Last year, averaged 25 and 4, and he did it on very solid percentages 45% from the field, almost 39% from three point land. So, You can't really argue that he's a worse defender than Sexton. He's far superior to Sexton in that regard. But he is five years older than Sexton. And he's on a team that already has Hayward and has Miles Bridges and has LaMelo Ball. So they know with with Hayward on a max deal and LaMelo eventually being paid and Miles Miles Bridges, excuse me, only a year or so away from being paid, that is a lot of money to commit to someone who arguably will be your third or fourth biggest option on the team, and the second biggest option in their own backcourt. Terry Rozier getting four years and $97 million is pretty indicative that Colin Sexton, for those people holding out hope that somehow Jared Allen was going to make more money than Colin Sexton when he signed that five-year $100 million deal, or that somehow Sexton was going to come in at five years and $100 million, I think it's a pipe dream. I think realistically, the idea that Colin Sexton was ever going to make less than Jared Allen, it, it wasn't going to happen. $25 million a year is the average I expect Sexton to get. Could he get a little bit less? Maybe. But that's only going to probably happen if the Cavs are willing to do some extreme things with the leverage that they have through restricted free agency. Now, the second guy, Marcus Smart, he just extended... Even though there was rumors, Mannix was out there saying that potentially Stevens moving to GM might signal that Marcus Smart was not long for the Celtics. Well, that was proven wrong. He signed a four-year, $77 million extension. And in doing that, that locks him up with the Celtics for five more seasons because he still had a year left, all the way up to age 32. An average annual value of $19.25 million per season. And that's going to a guy who, while his calling card is defense, and that's clearly what he's being paid based on, offensively, he's always been arguably a liability depending on how much he shoots. Now, he's had some huge playoff games, and he's made some big baskets. I think we all remember, as Cavs fans, some big games he had against us when nobody was expecting much, and he dropped 20-plus point games and made a bunch of three-pointers. Many people would make the argument that he took a step back last year, And this is a guy who is doing 13, 4, and 6. Now, that's a far cry from what Colin gives you offensively. But the the bigger issue there is that he does it on bad percentages. It's a sub-40% shooter. He's a pretty bad three-point shooter, at least. I mean, he's made some clutch threes. I won't dismiss that. But last season, he only shot low 30%, 33% from three-point land. So this is not a guy who was getting paid 
based on offense. So I don't think that's a good sign for the Cavs because historically, offense is what gets you paid. And if Marcus Smart has an average annual value on his contract of 19 and a quarter million dollars based primarily on his leadership and his defense, and he got that at age 27, the idea that Colin Sexton is going to sniff anywhere shy of $20 million a season, extreme long shot. Now, two other guys worth noting in terms of combo guards who got paid this offseason. One was a guy many Cavs fans were hoping there was some kind of sign-and-trade possibility for, Lonzo Ball. 23 years old, so similar age profile to Colin Sexton. In being sign-and-traded to Chicago, he got a deal four years $85 million. Now that's an average annual value of over $20 million. That's 21 and a quarter million dollars. In addition to that, for the right to sign him to that deal, Chicago gave up Thad Young. They gave up Sadoransky. They gave up Garrett Temple. And they gave up a first round pick. I, my point in bringing all that up is that not only did they justify paying Lonzo Ball four for 85, They also gave up an asset to do it, and they brought him into a team. Debatably, he's their fourth option on the floor offensively because they have Zach Levine, they have DeMar DeRozan, they have Vooch, and then there's him. And and by and large, his role has never been to be a primary offensive player. He's tall, he can pass, he can rebound, good set three-point shooter. Surprisingly, he took such a leap forward this year, his three-point numbers were comparable to Collins. He does have his limitations. He's not much of a scoring threat outside of getting kickouts for threes. And while he made a massive leap in free throw shooting, he was a pretty atrocious free throw shooter before this year. In his defense, he jumped from you know shooting somewhere in the mid 50% to climbing up to 75 to 80%. So that's a good sign. But my point in bringing him up is that this is a guy who different skill sets, He's more of a secondary, across-the-box score guy who, will, who can score, but isn't an elite-level scorer. But he got four years for $85 million. He got over $20 million a season, and the team gave up an asset for the right to give him that contract. And they did all that, knowing that he would only be the arguably the fourth most important guy on their roster. That's important to consider when you look at Colin Sexton. Because while we do have other players on our roster who are better in other things, I don't think any Cavs fan could make the argument that Colin Sexton isn't our highest profile player right now. Jared Allen, of course. Darius Garland, of course. Both excellent players. Jared Allen got paid like an excellent player. But to that end, I think we should be ready for the fact that Colin Sexton is coming out of the gate expecting $25 million a year. Now, he may fall a little under that or a little over that, but here's another guy that doesn't get many headlines at all, is a fairly low-profile player, Spencer Dinwiddie. 28 years old, so five years older than Colin, went to Washington, and he got a contract for three years and $54 million, $18 million a season. Now, he's a good player. Last year, injuries, didn't get to play. Also, was on the Nets, who sadly, his role basically disappeared once Harden and Kyrie came on board. In 2020, this was a guy who did 21 points, four rebounds, seven assists, 
His percentages aren't the greatest, but he has decent size. He's 6'5", and he's a better ball mover than Sexton, without a doubt. That's not even debatable. But my point being, he's right in the middle of his prime. I mean, middle to late prime, depending on how you want to define it. And this is a guy who got nearly $20 million a season coming off a big injury. Also not a good sign if a guy who missed pretty much a whole season could command that kind of deal. And he did it without really money on the market. They had to set up a sign-in trade for Washington to be able to pull that off. And while they didn't really give up much in the way of assets, that team went out of its way to figure out a way to give Spencer Dinwiddie three years and $54 million. Those guys all signed this summer. Those are just the modern precedents for what we have to look at salary-wise. But if you go back a year before that, you had Fred Van Vliet making $21.25 million average over a course of a four-year deal. You had Joe Harris, who signed a four-year $75 million deal, and he's 29. His skills don't age all that much. He just has to make three-pointers. So the Nets are willing to pay him nearly $19 million as an ancillary guy in their offense. Just a guy who, you know, get in where you fit in type. I beg other Cav fans to just keep that in mind as we're debating how much we should lowball the guy who's our first option. Now, this is the one that should scare Cavs fans. This was two full seasons ago in 2019. He was coming off that good run alongside Didwinnie with the Nets in the summer where they lured Durant and they lured Kyrie Irving. Correction! I never said D'Angelo Russell. I go on this whole rift right here about him, but I never said the guy's name. I'm ashamed of myself. Back to the podcast. The show must go on. He got a contract, four years, $117 million. That's $29 million a season. And he did impressive numbers the year before. He was an all-star even. His profile at that point is very similar to Colin. He was right on that fringe of... Should he be an all-star? Should he not be an all-star? Now, he made it. Colin didn't. But the numbers he put up that season, 21, 4, and 7, he did that for a team that people considered to be on the ascent. And maybe this is a guy who's finally starting to put it together. And he cashed into the tune of $30 million a season. I think most people would say that that is not a desirable contract now. But, and that's the kind of risk you run. So don't get me wrong. I think the Cavs should definitely extend Sexton, within reason. To me, the reasonable number for Colin is around $25 million. That's what we should expect that he's probably going to want, and he's probably going to get paid. Because that's roughly what Jalen Brown got. De'Aaron Fox, similar in that range. Now, I'm not saying Sexton is better than either of those guys. Candidly, I would much rather have Jalen Brown. I think Jalen Brown is a steal at that price. Anyone expecting Colin Sexton to go for less than $100 million needs to eliminate that line of thinking because it's not going to happen. If he signs for less than $100 million, it's on a four-year deal. If he's on a five-year deal, we're looking at something closer to $120 to $125 million. As Fedor said, Labor Day, that's when they're going to start talking extensions. So that's when we'll have more clarity on this. But The other thing that Cavs fans should find concerning, and I I know I find it concerning, is just their modern history when it comes to extending guys before the contracts are up. They've done it multiple times. They did it with Jared Allen, of course. They They didn't force him to go out and get an offer sheet. They came to terms with him for five years and $100 million, and I've made my feelings on that known. I love Jared Allen, but that was a bit of an overpay. They 
chose for whatever reason not to use the leverage that restricted free agency affords them. And rather than make a team commit to a big offer sheet and then match it regardless of what it was, they decided, probably similar to the line of thinking that the Pelicans had with Josh Hart, we're going to give the guy more to try to structure the deal in a way that we can live with. So they got five years, $20 million every season. There's no rising salaries. There's no lowering salaries. It's just even across the board. And they paid a premium to do it. Because if you look in the market, Jared Allen made nearly twice what the next center made in terms of contracts handed out this summer. The second highest paid center this summer, Holmes in Sacramento, statistically, basically the same. In fact, Holmes might have even had a better year statistically. But Allen is younger. Of course, he's going to get paid more. And I think we can all agree his potential is greater. We did pay a premium. He's now the sixth highest paid center in the league. Sixth, well, um, there's hybrid guys. That would lower him down that list. But he's up there amongst the highest paid centers in the league. Nerlens was the third highest paid center this summer at around $9 million a season. He signed that deal with the Knicks, three for 27. But after that, it's a bunch of bargain bin guys. And there's some surprising values there. I know we all have our problems with Andre Drummond. But $2.4 million. Dwight Howard, $2.6 million. Enos Cantor, $2.6 million. And we've committed $20 million to our center. My point in bringing that up is it's more the way we operate in terms of extending guys early. Now, when we extended Kevin Love, I think those of us who were being honest with ourselves at the time knew that that was a lot of money to give to a guy heading towards 30 who was going to be playing for a team who didn't really have any hope of competing. But we were okay with it. We're coming off the championship, still riding the high of that. But we extended him early. And now we're into that phase where we still have two years left of waiting out this deal. We paid him a premium to stay here. Chetty, we've paid him 8 to $9 million a season. And while that's not a huge deal... We didn't really risk it. We didn't chance that, hey, maybe we can get this guy much cheaper. Maybe somebody won't want to commit that much money to a bench guy, and we can sign him for something closer to, you know, $5 million, $6 million. And I think most of us probably regret that now. But that's not to say that Osmond couldn't earn that contract still. I mean, he had a fantastic preseason, I thought, last year. There were times where I looked at him and I thought, well... You know, Okoro, as good as he was in the preseason last year, Osman had moments where I thought he looked equally as good. But then, of course, he had a horrible season. He also extended early. We extended Larry Nance Jr. Now, Larry Nance Jr.'s contract looks like an absolute value now. But at the time we signed it, we were paying Tristan Thompson nearly $18 million. We were paying love on his massive deal. And this was a guy who was the first big off the bench who we were committing 10 to $11 million to a season. At the time, it seemed like an overpay. Because look at the type of centers who are out there now. you got Sacramento's frontline starter making $11 million a deal, a guy who's expected to play 30 to 32 to 34 minutes a night in, in Rashawn Holmes. So at the time, it was a lot of money to give to a backup. Now, Larry has proven he's worth it. He's the type of bench guy who brings everyone else up around him. And that extension worked out. I'm happy about that. But I bring those up to frame the point 
that when we're discussing what Colin Sexton is going to get, we also need to consider the Cavs' history. When they have a guy who they value, when they have a guy who they think is a a player who they want as a part of their future, history has shown us that Altman tends to extend these guys at more than fair market value early. So while yes, I think it's entirely possible the Cavs could retain Colin Sexton at less than $25 million per season, there's one path to making that happen. And that's playing hardball with his restricted free agent status. It's not something we have seen in the Altman era. Now, we did see it in the Danny Ferry era. He did it with Verjao and he did it with Pavlovich. He dug his heels into the point where those guys basically sat out. But eventually, he got them on the terms they wanted. Now, this does not happen in in modern NBA anymore. For the most part, this is a player-driven league. Nobody wants to risk upsetting the player or the agent of the player because that agent likely represents multiple other people. And I don't think we're going to hear a lot from behind the scenes from our own front office. I think it's going, it'll be out there. I mean, it happened this summer. There were people who just trashed him and said, look at this. The Cavs don't even want to keep him. And the Cavs are terrible, blah, blah, blah. But I don't think you're going to see a lot of contentious stuff because I also don't think that's Sexton's personality. By all accounts, extremely hard worker, great guy. And while his flaws on the court may frustrate some people, and he is going to get paid from somewhere. So I don't know when it's going to happen, but I do expect an extension to get done because that's just how the Cavs have operated. And realistically, the expectation for Colin Sexton should be anywhere between four years, slightly over $100 million, or five years, somewhere between 120 to $130 million. That's really what we're looking at. And truthfully, I think he's worth that. I think he's earned that. We can quibble and debate about our shortcomings on the court and how Colin Sexton isn't helping those. But you have to step back and view his value in terms of other teams have other holes and they are lacking things like scoring, which Colin, you can't really debate. He's an elite level scorer for a 23-year-old. So he's going to get paid. It's just a matter of when it goes down. This is a Fear the Fro podcast. Bathroom break edit. Okay, back on the Fear the Fro podcast. Bathroom break behind me. I don't have any sponsors, so there are no commercials to break it up. So I'm sorry, I just paused it. Now I want to touch on some of the elements around the NBA that have happened in the past week. First being some signings and trades. Josh Hart, while we've covered Josh Hart on this podcast, in those episodes we discussed his fit with the Cavs. Ultimately, he re-signed with the Pelicans. Three years, $38 million. Now, the reaction amongst many was, well, that was more than we could afford anyway, or I wouldn't want to pay him that anyway. I think the interesting development in that came out today, in that Bobby Marks revealed the second and third year in the contract is not guaranteed. So effectively, the Pelicans sign him with the ability to pay him $13 million a year for three years, or to move him because the deals aren't guaranteed in the second and third year. So I love what the Pelicans did there. Yes, they paid him more than they probably needed to if he made it into free agency and had to drum up an offer sheet, but they got what they wanted out of it. 
They got financial flexibility as Zion's extension is approaching and they can use him to help balance deals. But in the meantime, they still have him as an effective player while they're trying to compete. I do think there's some parallels there in the Jared Allen situation because, well, yes, we obviously paid him a little more than maybe the market would have dictated had we forced him to go find that offer sheet. We got what we wanted out of the situation, and that is worth the premium we paid because you can't go and trade a first-round pick for Jared Allen just to let him leave in free agency. The other deals that happened a couple days ago, Eric Bledsoe moved to the Clippers where he originally began things, and in exchange, Patrick Beverly, Rajon Rondo, and Daniel Oturu moved to the Grizzlies. Now, all those guys, not long-term contracts. Expiring contract for Pat Bev, already Patrick Beverly has been moved for Juancho Hernan Gomez and Jared Culver to the Minnesota Timberwolves. So he's already been shifted. The Grizzlies effectively took the contract that they took on from the Pelicans in their big Steven Adams, Jonas Valanciunas draft pick trade, and they moved it to the Clippers for guys who aren't long-term money and a developmental prospect in Jared Culver. I understand why they did that. Makes sense to me. Who I really like the deal for is the LA Clippers. They are in this in-between period where this season Kawhi may not even play at all. In all likelihood, he won't. So, their chances of winning the title are probably minimal. They'll still be a good team in the West. Paul George showed that he could lead that team pretty far, but I don't think anyone is expecting them to be a true title contender with the Lakers and the Nets and the Bucks and whoever else may be there at the end of the season. But in doing what they did, in acquiring Eric Bledsoe, not only do they get a point guard who's a bit more of a two-way point guard, you could argue, than Patrick Beverly or Rajon Rondo. I think his on-court production is really kind of immaterial at this point. This is a guy who gives them more options from a financial standpoint. This season, it saves Balmer $30 million in tax money, which that's one of my least favorite talking points because who cares as the fans? I don't. Balmer's the richest owner in the NBA. Who cares how much money it saves him? But what it does do, interestingly enough, is that it creates an $8.5 million traded player exception. Good for a year. And since this happened after this big rush of free agency, that traded player exception will still be in place during free agency next year. In addition to that, Eric Bledsoe has this year left on his contract, and he has next year left on his contract. Both of those years, he's getting paid around $18 to $19 million a season, which is a lot of money for a player providing what he's providing. Next season, when presumably Kawhi Leonard will be back and Paul George hopefully will be healthy and they'll be ready to contend again with their true superstar in place, Bledsoe only has $3.9 million guaranteed. So they could do one of two things. They could use him this year. They could trade him to a team who fully intends to waive him and wants that partial guarantee in order to clear up their books. They could trade him for a guy who's a bit of a damaged asset or a rental like a Kelly Oubre last year with the Warriors and bring that guy in alongside Kawhi Leonard and Paul George and whoever sends that asset to the Clippers can then turn around, take Bledsoe, wave him, 
and free up nearly anywhere between 13 to $16 million in salary cap space, which is a valuable trade asset to have when the alternative was Patrick Beverly and Rajon Rondo on expiring deals, which maybe you could move those, but this gets them an extra six months to make the decisions about what they're going to do with Bledsoe to try to maximize his return and put more pieces alongside Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. Because from a cap standpoint, the Clippers are in rough shape. They've got those guys on huge deals, and they've locked into Morris, and they've locked into Kennard. Eventually, Terrence Mann is going to make money too, and they're going to have to come to the decision about how to add more talent without more cap space. Bledsoe gives them two shots at that. Not just the $8.5 million traded player exception, which will bring in somebody decent in all likelihood, but also the ability to weaponize Eric Bledsoe's partial guarantee. And the Cavs, we should be all too familiar with this because we tried to do the same thing with J.R. Smith. Now, it didn't work. We also tried to do the same thing with Brendan Haywood. In J.R.'s case, he was making $15 million, only had about five, I want to say four and a half million guaranteed. And we tried to work a deal with the Heat where we would give him to them. We would take back some bad salary and get an asset. That's what I'm suggesting the Clippers will have the ability to do. For a team up against the cap, what they did in LA to get Bledsoe, I like the deal. I think it's good for them because it gives them two more chances conceivably to put more pieces around their core of Kawhi and Paul George. And now an update on the worst person in the world. I didn't know I hit him. Dream on! Help that guy to shut his mouth! He's garbage! The other thing I wanted to touch on, Draymond Green and Kevin Durant sat down for an interview on uh, Bleacher Report's Chips, hosted by Draymond Green. It's an endeavor I assume he's starting to set up his post-playing career, although many would say that he's already in the post-playing part of his career. I know he went to the Olympics and all that, but come on. He's just fallen off a cliff. I think we can all acknowledge that. Anyway, back to the interview and less personal hatred towards Draymond. He was discussing with Kevin Durant the argument they had on the court where the two were screaming at one another. And shortly after that, the Warriors suspended Draymond for a game. But it was pretty much the beginning of the end. It was at that point, I think everybody went from speculating if Kevin Durant would leave the Warriors to thinking... Yeah, no, he's definitely gone. And Draymond Green posed that question to Kevin Durant. How much did our argument drive you to ultimately lead the Warriors? It wasn't the argument. It was the, the way that everybody, Steve Kerr, act like it didn't happen. Bob Myers and tried to just discipline you and think that that would put the mask over everything. I really felt like that was such a big situation for us as a group. The first time we went through something like that, we had to get that shit all out. I remember watching The Last Dance, and when Scotty didn't go into the game, the whole team in the locker room said, Scotty, that was fucked up that you did that. We needed that. We just needed to throw all of that shit out on the table and say, yo, Dre, okay, like, that was fucked up that we even had to go through that. Let's just wipe our hands with that and go f- go finish the task. I don't think we did that and we tried to dance around it. I just didn't like how all of that, just the vibe between all of that, it just made shit weird to me. And I'd rather us be who we say we are, family first, communication is key. Like, I, we didn't show that and I, that's what rubbed me the wrong way more than anything. 
It's interesting that they blame the front office. They were the two principal characters in the altercation, so they should know better than anyone. And I will say, in defense of Draymond, I thought the interview as a whole was an excellent interview worth watching. I think you should go to YouTube and watch it start to finish. I think it's 25 minutes. It's worth it. But specifically to this question, both of these guys allude to the fact that the way that Bob Myers and Steve Kerr handled their dust-up was a big part of what led to Kevin Durant leaving, which feels like a total cop-out to me. Just listen to this explanation. Now, mind you, they're saying, oh, you suspending me and not letting us resolve the conflict man-to-man, that only exacerbated the situation and made it worse. But then, even after saying that, Draymond Green goes on this little riff in the middle of the interview. When we landed back from L.A., they pulled me in that room for an hour and 45 minutes, and they tried to tell me, you need to apologize. And I told them, I'll talk to Kay, but y'all aren't going to tell me what I need to say. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, they realized, all right, we're not getting through to him. We're going to try again in the morning. And so we met the next morning, and they said, all right, you slept on it. You ready to apologize? And I told them right then and there, I said, y'all about to fuck this up. I said, the only person that can make this right is me and Kay. And there's nothing that y'all can do, and y'all are going to fuck this up. And in my opinion, they fucked it up. I think so, too. So, on one hand, it's Bob Myers and Steve Kerr's fault. Because somehow, them suspending you for a game meant that they didn't want you to work it out face-to-face. The two aren't mutually exclusive. Draymond Green is acting as if Steve Kerr and Bob Myers prevented him from going to Durant directly and either apologizing or if he wants to refuse to apologize because he doesn't think he owes him one or he's too prideful. Still, they could resolve the dispute. There was nothing the Warriors did by punishing him. Somehow that meant that they were no longer able to discuss as a team the disagreement they had had. It feels like some hindsight shifting of blame from Draymond onto the front office. Because God forbid he be linked as the guy that drove away arguably the best player in the league or the second best player in the league at that point. Again, I encourage you to follow me on Twitter at FearTheFroPod, Instagram at FearTheFroPod, visit the website, FroPod.com. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing leaving a review or, or whatever the case may be. I'll be back with more next week. We've got this long period of time during which the Cavs will be working towards training camp. But as my first subject indicated, I think the majority of the news between now and then is just going to be filling out those two-way roster spots, maybe adding one more wing player. And of course, waiting on the Colin Sexton extension news. Thank you for listening. Bob Schmidt. The Fear the Fro podcast. Till next time. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over. Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel. Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.